1845, a British expedition led by Sir John Franklin set off to find the so-called Northwest Passage, a sea route linking the Atlantic and the Pacific via the Canadian Arctic. People have been looking for the Northwest Passage since the 16th century by seeing either how far west they could get from the Atlantic or how far east they could get from the Pacific. This was like a holy grail for sea explorers. Given how hard it was to find, the Northwest Passage was probably not going to be much use for shipping, even if it did exist. So instead, it became a sort of mythical prize that generations of explorers set out to find for its own sake, like climbing a mountain. Franklin's expedition had the full backing of the British Empire, which at that point was at its height. He was a naval officer who'd been involved with previous attempts to find the Northwest Passage, and he'd lobbied hard to get the job of leading this new expedition, with two large ships, actually decommissioned warships, and 129 men. The government-funded Franklin expedition travelled in style. The ships were luxurious by the standards of previous polar missions with heating and huge stores of preserved food. They also had cattle, sheep, pigs and hens to provide food in the initial stages of the journey. Each ship had a library with a thousand books and there were three onboard pets, a cat, a dog and a monkey. But after setting off into the Canadian Arctic, the entire expedition just vanished without trace. In the years that followed, there were more than 30 attempts to find and rescue Franklin and his crew. The British government offered a £20,000 reward, a fortune at the time, to anyone who could figure out what had happened. At first, only a few traces left behind by the expedition were found. Tin cans, a pair of goggles, and a few items of cutlery. Then, in 1859, a letter was discovered, written 11 years earlier, recording the death of Franklin and several of his men. But the fate of the rest of the crew remained unclear. Ultimately, it seems that everyone perished as a result of scurvy and starvation. Local Inuit people told a later explorer that the last few survivors had even resorted to cannibalism in their final days. But this news conflicted with the heroic image of Franklin and his crew, so the official government position was that these accounts were just malicious lies. In recent decades, the remains of most of Franklin's crew have been found, and the sunken wrecks of the two ships, Erebus and Terror, were finally located in 2014 and 2016, following tips from Inuit people that had previously been ignored. It seems the ships got trapped in the ice, and their crews gradually died of starvation and disease, possibly including some kind of poisoning from their tinned food. And cut marks on bones show that some survivors did indeed resort to cannibalism. If you say unsinkable ship today, everyone thinks of the Titanic. And if you said Northwest Passage after 1850, everyone would have thought of the doomed Franklin expedition. Its failure discouraged other people from looking for the Northwest Passage. But in 1903, an explorer set out to succeed where Franklin had failed, using a very different approach. And the contrast between these two expeditions can tell us a lot about exploring a dangerous new frontier. And the reason that's relevant today is that we are contemplating our own new frontier in the 21st century, the exploration of space, and in particular, going to Mars. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And from Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. 
So if I'm going to Mars, what do I need? A big rocket ship, some fuel for that ship, supplies for the journey and for when I get there, like food, equipment, and so forth. And people are thinking about all of this quite seriously these days because it looks as though landing people on Mars is going to be possible in the next decade or two. We've heard about Franklin and his failed expedition to find the Northwest Passage. So who was brave enough to give it another go in the wake of Franklin's disaster? Step forward, Roald Amundsen, a Norwegian explorer. Roald Amundsen grew up in Norway, fascinated by tales of Arctic expeditions. This is Jonathan Karpoff, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. He studies organizational effectiveness, and he's applied that expertise to the history of polar exploration. People were driven by many motives. Some of the explorers took an almost religious view toward the journey of of going through hell to get to heaven, so to speak. Polar explorers came back to uh, adoring crowds, much like, say, astronauts in the 1960s and 70s. If you were British and you had success in the Arctic, you would become knighted. Defeat or, or the loss of ship or the loss of life were national disgraces that led to just excoriating editorials and newspapers, reduction in budgets. There's an intense nationalistic pride in many of these expeditions. So it sounds like polar exploration is kind of the Victorian equivalent of the space race, where these countries and empires are competing with each other. Yes, and this explains why the loss of the Franklin expedition was hugely embarrassing for the British government. Polar exploration was followed really avidly by the public. And in Franklin's case, songs were written about him, statues were put up wrongly claiming that he had, you know, perished in a successful attempt to find the Northwest Passage. And there were paintings made of him and his men, you know, flying the flag for Britain. These explorers were emissaries for the public that captured this fascination, the fear and fascination with all that is other than us, all that is foreign and fascinating, yet frightful at the same time. There were also other commercial justifications for all this exploration. You could open up new trade routes, you could gain access to new resources. And some people, like Roald Amundsen, were genuinely drawn by the desire to explore an unknown frontier. So how do you apply for this job of polar explorer? I'm imagining like a polar explorer academy. The short answer is you have to learn on the job. So Amundsen originally went to medical school to please his mother, but he gave up medicine when he was 21 after his mother died and he immediately signed up to go on an expedition to the Antarctic and it didn't go well. They didn't end up eating each other, that's a good sign, but the ship got stuck in Antarctica over the winter, which wasn't part of the plan, and everyone nearly died. At one point, half the crew had gone mad, and the other half were expecting to die and were writing their wills. But fortunately, Amundsen kept his head and took command, and perhaps because of his medical training, he realised the thing to do was to get everyone to eat raw seal meat, which sounds really disgusting, but it gradually restored their health, and so they got home safely. And over the course of the next few years, Amundsen and built up more valuable experience. He worked to train himself in how to travel in Arctic terrain and was an expert skier. 
It seemed that Amundsen had a natural talent for this sort of thing, or maybe it was just a field where everyone was making it up as they went along. Anyway, he used his inheritance to buy his ship, the Yoa, which had been built in 1872, the year of his birth, so it seemed it was meant to be. And he spent two years assembling the six-man crew and the equipment that he would need for his planned expedition to discover the Northwest Passage, the thing he'd wanted to do all his life. But when he finally set out on June the 16th, 1903, it was in rather unusual circumstances. He literally left in the middle of the night, a half a step ahead of his creditors who were about to confiscate his ship. Amundsen was doing things in a very different way, with a small boat and a small crew. His plan had been to fund the expedition himself and keep it quiet. But he ran out of money and he had to borrow. He wouldn't say exactly what he was borrowing the money for and only told his close associates. Eventually, his creditors started to worry and moved to impound his ship. So he decided to make a run for it to the Canadian Arctic. Amundsen and his crew sailed to King William Island, high above the Arctic Circle, where they made contact with the local Netsilic Inuit people, who taught them valuable survival skills. Amundsen very quickly learned from Inuits in northern Canada that loose-fitting furs had tremendous insulating properties and allowed for efficient movement. He also learned how to handle dogs, which helped him on a subsequent expedition to the South Pole. The explorers gave the Inuit needles, tin cans, knives and other items in return for this valuable knowledge. Amundsen's team spent nearly two years honing their skills and traveling over the ice to make observations of the magnetic North Pole. They showed that the pole had moved about 30 miles north since its discovery in 1831, which was an important scientific result. We now know, thanks to Amundsen, that the magnetic North Pole moves around, and every few years, someone figures out where it's moved to. This was in the news recently, in fact, because the position had changed once again by a fair amount. And every time this happens, people need to update their nautical charts and so forth because your magnetic compass is no longer pointing to the same north that the chart says it should. So scientifically, the expedition had already produced valuable results. But as far as Amundsen was concerned, all of this was just the warm-up, as it were, for the main event, his search for the Northwest Passage. Now that his crew had the skills they needed, they were ready for the journey ahead of them. So in the summer of 1905, Amundsen and his crew set sail and headed westward into the maze-like archipelago of the Canadian Arctic, the very region where Franklin had disappeared. For several weeks, they painstakingly picked their way through the shoals of the Arctic Straits amid fog, unpredictable currents and floating ice. And finally, on August the 17th, the ship reached Cape Colborne, which was the easternmost point to have been reached by any ship coming from the Pacific. This meant Amundsen and his crew had found the final link in the chain. They had shown that the Northwest Passage existed. With careful planning, the ability to live off the land and the cooperation of local people, they'd made the completion of this centuries-old quest, which had claimed hundreds of lives on previous attempts, look easy. Okay, we've got two contrasting expeditions. We've got Franklin, which fails so miserably that they end up eating each other. And then we've got Amundsen, which is a spectacular success. So it seems like we could definitely learn some lessons about how to travel to polar regions. But Tom, what does this tell us about going to Mars? 
Well, it can tell us how to organize a dangerous mission to an unexplored frontier. But more specifically, there are actually quite a lot of similarities between going to Mars and going to the polar regions. Antarctica is the nearest thing we have on Earth to going to Mars, and it's actually where scientists and astronauts go to practice. My name is Carmen Posnick, and I've just spent a year in Antarctica at Concordia Station researching space medicine for the European Space Agency. So you've just come back from Antarctica. What was it like living there for a whole year? The extreme environment there and, uh, well, the the isolated and confined situation um, is a tough, uh, really a tough experience, but it was worth every moment. Antarctica is the best stand-in we have on Earth for a space voyage or a base on Mars for a number of reasons. So we have an isolated, confined environment. We have a small number of people that are confined for almost a year. We have um, the extreme environment, minus 80 degrees Celsius. We have um, almost four months of darkness and then in summer, four months of sunlight. So we have to disrupt that um, circadian rhythm as well. It may not be the red planet, but White Mars, as Antarctica is sometimes known, also has an unwelcoming and dangerous environment. And that makes it perfect for simulating a space mission. You know exactly that outside this is a deadly environment. And then um, just going outside in the wintertime when it's completely dark, you have to dress up for a quarter of an hour. You have to make sure that no part of your skin is uh, exposed to the cold. You have a huge starry sky, the Milky Way and shooting stars all the time above you and you walk through the darkness. It really does feel like as if you were on another planet. It's quite an alien environment. And what kind of research and experiments were you doing? We were looking mostly at the immune system because um, Antarctica is, well, it's almost a sterile environment. We are just 13 people, so similar um, to a space mission where, well, there's nothing much, no no microbes in, in a spaceship either. Carmen was also looking into how motor skills deteriorate over long periods under these conditions. To conduct her experiment, she used a simulator of the Soyuz spaceship. And basically, I was training my crewmates um, to fly the simulator. I was looking at um, how motoric skills and uh, cognition develop over the time of the isolation period. What did you observe? Did people lose the skills? As soon as the sun uh, disappeared, I noticed that at least the cognitive skills were were, um, deteriorating and uh, also the motoric skills were not as good as they used to be in the beginning. So being in space and being in the Antarctic are similar. I can see that you'd need to understand how people's immune systems would behave and how their physical skills might be affected by isolation and by being in darkness for months at a time. But the scarier part for me is the psychological dimension. I haven't been cooped up with other people to the same extent that these scientists were, but when I did reporting for my book, I was on a container ship going across the Atlantic for nine days. And at first, it was kind of a relief to be away from email and to have plenty of time to read books. But when we hit the middle of the ocean, the fog came in and surrounded the ship and it got incredibly claustrophobic. There weren't many people on the ship. People kind of holed up in their rooms and it just felt so tight and small and lonely, and I was psychologically miserable. If they had gone on much longer, I think I might have lost my marbles. I was thrilled when the fog cleared. 
Well, it's really hard to imagine how people are going to cope with going to Mars. It's going to be several years away at minimum. Um, But the best way to find out, of course, would be to ask someone who's actually been on a Mars mission. And it just so happens that I know someone who has. Well, sort of. What was it like going to Mars? Well, um, it was out of this world. I truly felt like uh, I was in a completely different place. I felt very isolated from Earth. This is Kate Green. She's a science writer, and in 2013, she took part in a mission called High Seas. Well, I really was on Mauna Loa, um, on the island of Hawaii, and the purpose of this mission was to simulate a, a ground mission on Mars. There were six of us. We lived as if we were astronauts exploring the surface of Mars for four months. The idea was to simulate the isolation of a Mars mission and collect data that could inform NASA's mission planning. Among other things, like having to put on cumbersome spacesuits and use airlocks to go outside, access to the internet was delayed by as much as 40 minutes, as it would be for explorers on Mars, because of the time it takes for radio signals to travel to Earth and back again. But the real objective was to um, increase the, the psychic uh, feel of isolation, and that 20-minute communication delay significantly contributed to that. To cope with the isolation, Kate and her crewmates kept themselves busy with experiments and other tasks. They also had twice-weekly movie nights. They were mandatory because you needed some downtime. You couldn't just keep working throughout. We also had, every month, we had a celebratory party where we um, would move around the furniture, we would decorate, we would make crazy foods and put the music up really loud and just dance and be goofy and, and definitely didn't talk about work or anything else. The idea was to mix up the environment a bit so it wouldn't look the same all the time. Polar explorers faced the same problem because the sea or the ice around them could look the same for months on end. And this was just one lesson that the simulated mission drew from research into polar exploration. There is something called the third quarter syndrome. There has been some reports of it in the diaries of Antarctic or Arctic explorers that say that, you know, three quarters into a mission, you get kind of antsy. The small irritations that were always there sort of begin to amplify. But I saw evidence of this absolutely in the third quarter. People were getting more irritated with um, certain responses from mission support. Um, You know, I in particular found myself um, having a short temper with a couple of my crew members. And, um, and I noticed that and I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not immune to these things. And sometimes disagreements arose over apparently trivial things, the kind of things that everyone's experienced if they've ever shared a flat. In fact, there was one incident that went down in infamy. It's known as the Nutella incident, where someone did eat a giant spoonful of Nutella after dinner as dessert. Um, And this was offensive to the sensibilities of another crew member. And a very heated discussion ensued. It was awkward and tense, and especially in an environment where there wasn't much else going on. (laughs) It It was one of the most intense discussions I'd ever been a part of up to that point. This kind of thing may sound silly, but with a small crew in confined conditions in a difficult environment, psychological factors can make the difference between success and failure. If something goes wrong socially on a Mars mission, it could be as devastating as a rocket explosion. So if we're going to learn from history when it comes to going to Mars in the future, the big question is, why did Amundsen succeed where Franklin had failed? Here's Jonathan Karpoff again. 
Franklin was burdened with several handicaps. He didn't have a particular passion or interest in Arctic expeditions, per se. He was appointed to his initial expedition in the early part of the 19th century because he had political connections, not because he had any particular knowledge about backpacking, snow travel, or work in high latitudes. Lesson one, a successful expedition has a dedicated leader who has a real passion for the field, which Franklin didn't. So for our Mars mission, we need a passionate, charismatic, possibly slightly crazy-sounding leader. How are we doing there? Well, do any spacefaring billionaires come to mind? Heck yeah, let's smoke blunts with Elon Musk in the space capsule. Yeah, that's probably a recipe for sort of Franklin-style disaster. But the lack of dedication wasn't Franklin's only disadvantage. He was laboring with large crews, trying to import much of British civilization with them into the Arctic, rather than adapting to the Arctic. Amundsen worked to train himself in how to travel in Arctic terrain. Lesson two, a successful expedition tries to work with the environment rather than against it where possible. Franklin, with his big, luxurious ships, didn't do that either. So how do you do that on Mars? There's no fish, there's no raw seal meat to eat, there's no indigenous people to learn survival tips from. True, but there are ways to live off the land on Mars rather than just trying to take everything with you. For example, you can make use of water in the ice caps to produce oxygen and fuel. You could grow food in your spaceship on the way there and then grow food on the surface when you get there instead of taking it all in cans. I've seen this movie. This is what Matt Damon does in The Martian when he grows potatoes to to survive on Mars. Exactly. Potatoes all round. And then we get to the structure of the crew. Franklin got that wrong too. Amundsen studied closely the failures of his predecessors and determined that first he needed a a smaller boat that had a, a smaller draft and could go through shallower water. He needed a smaller crew. He was very careful to make sure that everybody had an area of responsibility for which they were in charge. And this doesn't just make people more effective. It also helps them maintain their mental health. Roald Amundsen was was a master leader in this regard. He talks about the importance of certain types of rituals during the day. Having the cook wake up first and have coffee going and hotcakes on the griddle. He wrote about how the smell and the sounds of the, the spoons clinking in the glasses as the cook was getting food ready was something that he organized intentionally to get people sort of in the right frame of mind. Lesson three, a successful expedition has a small hand-picked crew appointed on merit and a flat organizational structure that makes everyone responsible for its success. You can imagine how if each crew member has well-defined responsibilities, then that would give them a sense of ownership over the mission and help them stay mentally engaged. But it turns out that there's another factor that underpins all of this. When Jonathan Karpov did a detailed study of 92 polar expeditions, which took place between 1818 and 1909, he made a surprising discovery of his own. I found that there is one factor that stands out most prominently, and that was the source of funding. Private expeditions were, in general, much more successful and at much lower cost than public expeditions. For example, on average, the 35 public expeditions lost to death 5.9 people per trip. The corresponding number for the 57 private expeditions during this same time period 
is 0.9. It turned out that public expeditions like Franklin's were also more likely to lose ships or be debilitated by scurvy, and private expeditions like Amundsen's were more likely to make significant geographical discoveries. But why? Public funding came with burdens and shackles. Um, and and these, these burdens included poor organizational structure, poor incentives, and as a result, poor leadership and little adaptation and learning. So in particular, public expeditions tended to be organized by people who did not subsequently go on the trip. So the people who had conceived of the ideas, uh, made plans for the expeditions, were not the ones whose lives were on the line. So uh, the numbers are over three quarters of public expeditions were conceived of and designed by people who didn't go on the trip, whereas that same, same number for private expeditions was less than a quarter. Perhaps that means one of the mission planners should be selected at random to go to Mars. Once it's all been planned, they could draw lots or something. That sounds a little bit crazy, but I guess a certain amount of craziness or at least a willingness to try new and unusual things does seem necessary to succeed. I think it's, it's the same kind of passion and seeming craziness in innovation of all types that we just got to observe with polar exploration a century or two ago and we're seeing in space exploration today, but it's really about innovation and exploration uh, in all areas. It seems like there's one other way we can learn from the past when it comes to going to Mars. Actually, it might be more accurate to say there's something we can unlearn, and that's this tendency to think of exploration as a political competition between countries and empires. That's what happened with the space race in the 1960s. It was driven by and all tangled up with the Cold War competition between America and the Soviet Union. And the same kind of nationalistic competition also drove polar exploration. Most famously, there was actually a race to the South Pole between Norwegian and British teams. And the Norwegian team, which was led by Amundsen, won, and they were the first people to get to the South Pole. And the British team all died. For Britain, it was another great heroic failure. Well, certainly competition can spur people to accomplish things that they otherwise wouldn't. But compared with this old-fashioned nationalistic approach, whether we're talking about polar exploration in the 19th century or getting to the moon in the 1960s, which I know the company line here is that America came in peace for all mankind, but there is an American flag up there on the surface. Yeah, it's, it's not a United Nations flag, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. Well, we don't necessarily need to do it that way when we go to Mars. We have an opportunity here to make this journey to a new frontier on behalf of the whole of humanity. There are signs that we're moving in this direction with, say, the International Space Station, obviously a big international collaboration, and also the way Antarctica is shared for scientific research by the whole world, rather than being claimed by one country or another. But now there seems to be a new race developing to go to the moon. And what will happen when people first go to Mars? I have a strong concern about the attitude that sometimes drives the desire for people to travel to places beyond the Earth. This is Danielle Wood, Assistant Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT. Traditionally, humans have traveled to new places partly based on a sense of power and entitlement that I think is concerning. We see this in the history of colonization on Earth, where a few countries thought it was their right to go to any place on Earth and actually take that land for themselves and use it. Even if somebody was already living there, or even if the natural environment was very fragile. 
Obviously, there are no people on Mars, but the danger is that competition between nations could lead to a land-grab approach by the first explorers who get there, and that could mess things up for later visitors by depleting resources and damaging the environment. So it's clear that whoever is living, for example, on the community on Mars will have to somehow use resources that are located there. There's not necessarily a renewal of the water on Mars. So we need to ask what kind of philosophy should we use and how we plan to use it. Will the first community that goes use whatever they need? And how will that leave opportunities for future visitors? In other words, we need to figure out the Martian equivalent of doing what Amundsen learned from the Inuit, which is to live off the land sustainably. There are communities, for example, that are indigenous communities in the Americas, or other communities around the world who uh, understand what it means to live in harmony with nature. I would love to ask their point of view on what it means to uh, have humans start communities on places like Mars. And instead of talking about building colonies or cities on the moon and Mars, Danielle Wood proposes another approach. I have great concern about the word colonization, but particularly because I think that the attitude behind it is still very prevalent. And I think we should not take that way of thinking into uh, the next generation of human spaceflight. What I'd like to see instead is for us to have great humility and recognize a sense of sacredness in the places we want to explore, such as the moon and Mars. We should think of them more like national or planetary parks and less like places where we can go and build cities or communities. For now, I think we should think of all of Mars like a park. But what about this question of public and private funding? Will companies or governments lead the way when it comes to the first mission to Mars? I think in a good way, we're going to see cross-connection between uh, the efforts by companies and by governments and by universities, rather than seeing competition, because actually we need each other to get there. So, Seth, would you go to Antarctica? Would you go to Mars? I do love to travel. I love new experiences. I have a child now, so I guess my question would be, how long am I away for? Implicit in your question there is this whole assumption that, of course, you're going to come back. Well, I better be able to come back. (laughs) Right. Well, this is the thing that people are talking about going to Mars and not coming back, not because they're dead, but because they're talking about kind of moving there, relocating there, retiring there. Um, Elon Musk talks about, he has this terrible joke. He says, I'd like to die on Mars, just not on impact. And what he means is he'd like to kind of go there at the end of his life and end up uh, living the the last years of his, his life there. So, that's very much the way some people are thinking about, about Mars as a, as a place to move to. And I don't think anyone thinks about Antarctica like that. So if that's the, uh, if that's the deal, you can come back from Antarctica. You can't come back from Mars. You, you're, you're definitely not on for going to Mars. Well, I'm definitely up for going to Antarctica if I can go for like 10 days and come home. Uh, as for Mars, if I'm going to go and stay, then I want to bring everybody I love with me, I kind of think about if, about moving out of New York to the suburbs. Like, can I convince all my friends to also move to the suburbs? That makes it much more attractive. So if we're all going along, if you're coming, Tom, and, and everybody else I know is coming, then sure, I'll, I guess I would go to Mars. If I could just sort of like rip up my life here and then plant it on Mars, I, I'd consider that. I think that might be a bit of a taller order than getting people to move to the suburbs. I also asked all of the guests that we had on this episode whether they would want to go. And I started with um, with Jonathan Karpov, and he knew exactly where he wanted to go in the Arctic. The place I most would like to go is northern Ellesmere Island. It's the area from which a number of explorers, starting in the latter part of the 19th century, attempted to base their attempts to go to the North Pole. 
And uh, I'd love to just spend time there. Okay, but the Arctic is the easy one. What about Mars? So when it comes to Mars, Carmen Posnick said yes. If the technology is right and with a return ticket, I would definitely go. But Kate Green was a little bit less enthusiastic. The technology would have to be solid. Um, I would have to be able to come back to Earth. If given a ticket, I wouldn't say no, but uh, I'm not I'm not gunning for it at this point. And Danielle Wood, who has actually worked at NASA in the past as well, thinks about this in terms of what experiences she could potentially bring back. Would my going somehow bring either inspiration or further sense of connection with those communities on Earth that I also want to collaborate with? And if that could be a possibility, I'd love to do so. But only so that I can come back and share the connection, the experience with others. So whether or not we want to go, and some people do and some people don't, what I take away from all of this is that there's much more to exploring these hostile environments than just technology. The lesson of history is that we have to take psychology and politics into account too. And we can learn a lot about how to do that and how not to do that by looking at the past. Future explorers of Mars can learn a lot from the forbidding, isolated polar environment and from the history of its exploration. Tom, do you want to go to Mars? Uh, yeah. I'd like to have my 90th birthday party there. So it turns out that in the year of my 90th birthday, there is a, I think it's a transit of Venus, which will not be visible from Earth, but will be visible from Mars. So I think that'd be kind of a cool thing to go for and, you know, take a few friends, make a trip of it. I'll check my mailbox for my invite. I'm Tom Standage. And I'm Seth Stevenson. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producers are Gabriel Roth, the editorial director for Slate Podcasts, and Anne McElvoy, head of audio at The Economist. And thanks to Merritt Jacob, technical director at Slate. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review so you can help others find the show too. Thanks for listening. 